Welcome back everyone to the channel. Tonight's terrifying story, I am giving you guys three different terrifying stories, starting with the bunker to the swamps to cornfields. Now stick around because it's about to get spooky. I found myself trapped in a bunker, but I am not alone. My name is Dave, a 23-year-old man with an insatiable thirst for adventure and a fascination with the supernatural. I've always been drawn to the uncharted, the unexplained, and the eerie. So it should come to no surprise that one day, while exploring a remote forest in California, I stumbled upon something that would forever change my life. The forest was dense, and the canopy of trees blocked out most of the sunlight, casting an eerie gloom over the area. As I ventured deeper into the woods, an unexpected glint of sunlight caught my eye. It was the reflection of something metallic buried under a pile of rubble. My curiosity got the better of me, and I began to clear away the debris, uncovering an old rusted door that led to an underground bunker. The entrance was overgrown with vines, but after some effort, I managed to pry it open. My heart raced as I descended the cold, dimly lit staircase into the underground structure. The bunker was much larger than I expected, its corridors stretching deep into the earth. The air was thick with the musty scent of time and decay, and I could sense that I was not the first person to have found this place. As I explored further, my footsteps echoing in the eerie silence, it became clear that I was not alone in the bunker. An ominous feeling crept over me, and I strained my ears to pick up any unusual sounds. That's when I heard it. A shuffling noise coming from the darkness ahead. I moved cautiously, my flashlight cutting through the darkness, revealing something that sent a chill down my spine. In the dim light, I saw a creature unlike any I had ever encountered in my wildest nightmares. It wasn't the typical tall, lanky, bony-fingered creature with the cold touch that you might expect from some horror story. No, this creature was something far more grotesque. It was almost obese, its hairless, pallid skin looking like it stretched too tight over its bloated body. The stench that emanated from it was unbearable like the smell of rotting flesh left out in the sun for days. Its face was a horrifying scene, with glazed-over wide eyes and a vertical mouth that ran down its descended body, filled with sharp, mishappened teeth. I could see how oily its skin looked, glistening in the faint light. As I stood there, frozen in terror, the creature began to move towards me. With each step it took, 
I could feel the ground trembling beneath its immense weight. It was approximately six feet tall, and if I had to guess, it had to have weighed close to a thousand pounds. The sheer presence of this abomination was overwhelming, and I couldn't tear my eyes away from it. When it locked its lifeless, milky eyes onto me, I knew I had to get out of there, and fast. Panic set in, and I turned and sprinted back the way I came. What astonished me was how quickly the creature pursued me, for something of its size. It moved with an unnatural swiftness, closing the distance between us in seconds. Adrenaline coursed through my veins as I desperately ascended the stairs, with the thundering footsteps of the grotesque creature echoing behind me. Somehow, through sheer luck and terror-fueled determination, I made it out of the bunker and slammed the door shut. The creature's monstrous appendages clawed at the entrance as I locked it from the outside, and its chilling, inhuman howls sent shivers down my spine. I fled from the forest as fast as my legs would carry me, not daring to look back. I never returned to that place, nor could I forget the horrifying encounter in the depths of the earth. To this day, I don't know what that abomination was or how it came to be in that bunker, but one thing is certain. I was not alone down there, and I pray that I never find myself trapped in such a nightmarish place again. A Shortcut Home Growing up, I had two major boogeymen. The first was drunk drivers. Drunk drivers became everyone's worst fear when, at the age of seven, Colin McCarthy's mother came to pick him up from school completely sloshed, and we were all gravely informed the next day that Colin would not be coming back. No one died, mind you. Not even the tree that Mrs. McCarthy wrapped her sedan around. But she was charged with driving under the influence and child endangerment, and Colin got sent to live with the foster family and had to change schools. We never made the connection between drunk driving and bodily harm. We thought that getting into a car with a drunk driver meant you end up in a foster home. But at age seven, the idea of going to a foster home was far scarier than being maimed anyway. The second ghost of my childhood was the crepe paper lady. The crepe paper lady was a sort of witch we imagined to haunt the boggy, undeveloped area behind our school, St. Mary's. She was called the crepe paper lady because she was so old that her gray, waxy skin appeared as thin as crepe paper. But don't let that fool you. Beneath that ancient skin are sinews as strong as steel cables, which will snap taut once her bony, gnarled hands have closed in on your wrist. She won't let go. Oh no. The crepe paper lady is inescapable. Once you've fallen into her grasp, or so we told each other. What's more, 
The crepe paper lady is crafty. She'll trick you, outwit you, and then she'll get you. Never talk to the crepe paper lady or you're as good as dead. Oh, and she won't just kill you. No, she'd play with you first. The only thing she liked more than torturing kids was drinking cooking sherry, which is why there were so many empty bottles strewn about the lot. If there was no sherry, well, she'd poke out your eyes with a screwdriver, hammer in your teeth, peel off your fingernails with pliers, or melt them off with hot wax. How we children had such dark little minds combined with such a strangely sadistic fetish for hardware, I'll never know. Much in the same way, we made the erroneous correlation between the threat of foster homes and drunk driving. We made the erroneous correlation between the legend of the crepe paper lady and the bog. The bog had so much more realistic dangers, you see. Our parents, most of them, warned us never to cut through that swampy area between Pete's Sweets and St. Mary's, even though the shortcut was 10 minutes and going around was 40. See, every few years, a child would disappear taking this shortcut. It was assumed either the child wandered into the swampier areas, where the ground was like a thick, heavy soup, hence why this plot of land was undeveloped, and drowned? Or worse, the child was kidnapped by the boogeyman of all parents, a molester. It's worth noting, though, that you are far less likely to get mowed down by Mrs. McCarthy in the bog than on the sidewalk. In any case, we chalked up both the danger and the disappearances to the crepe paper lady, and for all we knew, Perhaps our parents created the legend themselves to dissuade us from crossing the bog. Unfortunately, as we grew, the legends became a source not of fear, but of fascination. And we began tempting fate to show off to our friends, and to ourselves, our pre-pubescent bravado. It's not like it was nearly as dangerous as it had been advertised after all. Jeff Tully, whose father was a drunk and therefore could not be a driver, took the path to cut through the bog every single day to and from school. Jeff was two years older than us, having been held back two years, and said there was no crepe paper lady. Jeff's house was right next to Sweet Pete's, and you could often see him or his father at the window. His father did not care that Jeff took the bog path to school and often stood there at the window and watched him go. Jeff, it was rumored, was the one to have cut the hole in the chain-link fence behind Pete's sweets to gain access to the bog. But Jeff took no credit for this and said that the hole in the path had been there long before. The only real problem with the path from our perspective was that from Pete's Sweets, you could see the hole and also any naughty children coming out of it. Now, if you were going to school, that was easy. The grown-ups would only see your back, and even if they hollered, you'd be long gone. But coming out of the bog, you were pretty likely to be caught and given a good talking to. 
so we mostly used the path for going to school, especially if we were late. I was about 10 years old then, and my best friend, Abigail McCready, was also 10. We were only two days apart in age, making us best friends according to primary school rules. Both Gabby and I loved taking the path to school because of its forbidden mystery, though we rarely took it back because of the possibility of getting into trouble. Sometimes we played Crate Paper Lady Escape, and one of us would chase the other down the path to school. If we were coming back, though, we would take the long way, which was fine since we would stop by the McCready house where Mrs. McCready would be waiting. Mrs. McCready was a fine specimen of a homemaker. She was remarkably young and remarkably pretty. Every boy in the class had a crush on her. Unlike my own mother, Mrs. McCready always wore lipstick and often a dress. And she was thin, even though she appeared to do nothing but bake cakes. She sang along with the radio and laughed a lot, and followed every bout of laughter with an exclamation of, Oh my goodness gracious. Somehow, she never smudged her lipstick during these bouts of laughter. Mrs. McCready was a domestic goddess, the antithesis to Jeffrey Tully's drunken father. Everyone loved Abigail's mother and I, as Gabby's best friend, reaped the benefits of this relationship with her mother in the form of a bi-weekly slice of thick, moist cake. Anyways, we were ten, and we had had a quiet day at school. It had been the day of the science fair, and Gabby had won first prize, which came with a magnificent blue ribbon. Normally, I would have been envious, but I was pretty sure that it was rigged since Jeff Tully came in third with his mousetrap car that I overheard Mrs. Dunhue say he had submitted the same car last year. Besides, Gabby's first prize meant cake a plenty from Mrs. McCready. The two of us set off across the schoolyard, but then Gabby turned abruptly towards the bog. Come on, she said breathlessly. I want to get home. Well, of course she did. With a ribbon like that, who wouldn't? Giddy with excitement, the two of us grabbed each other's arms and made a dash towards the bog. It was October, so it was chilly, but there was still plenty of foliage, all of it in demure oranges and muted browns. The blue ribbons stood out in the drab atmosphere like a sore thumb. Our breaths came out in plumes in front of our faces and our cheeks turned red as we squelched our way down the path. It was always a little muddy, but if you knew where to step, on the little tufts of grass, you wouldn't get too dirty. Going from St. Mary's to Pete's Sweets was a slight incline uphill, and at a curve to boot. We huffed our way to the top through the mud, feeling clever to have taken the shortcut. It was a lot cooler than we had expected and we were both looking forward the hot chocolate cake at Gabby's house. Tomorrow, I remember thinking, I'll have to get out my winter coat. As we rounded the bend, laughing merrily, two things loomed out at us. First, the chain-link fence and the hole in it. 
and second, blocking it, hands on her hips. Mrs. McCready. Oh, she was mad. So mad she was shaking. In a white dress with blue polka dots, she stood furious. Our giggles died and our pace slowed as we approached guiltily. We knew the rules and we knew we were in big trouble. How dare you! hissed Mrs. McCready, swiping for Gabby's arm. She caught it and Gabby cried out in alarm and hurt. And I saw that her mother wasn't just grabbing the dragger home, but was actually digging her fingers in. And that's when I noticed everything else. The smeared lipstick and the flyaway hair. The wild horse eyes. The shoeless feet, slightly sunk into the chilly autumn mud. And tying all these things together, the smell of alcohol. Mrs. McCready was fall down drunk. You little bitch. She snarled, shaking poor Gabby by the arm. You know what mother's told you. Never go to the bog. Never. You snot-nosed little brat. How dare you? Mommy, stop! Cried Gabby, who wasn't really crying because I was there, but would definitely have been if I wasn't. She tried to pry Mrs. McCready's fingers off of her, but they were like a steel trap. I became fascinated with the ground because I was embarrassed of my friend. I noticed that Mrs. McCready's toenails were overgrown and slightly yellow, unlike her long, perfectly painted fingernails. The incongruence bothered me deeply. And you? Me? I looked up just in time to see her swipe at me. I jerked back. Come here this instant, you miserable little worm. I'm taking you home right now and telling your mother what you've been up to said Mrs. McCready, her voice rising into a shriek. Taking me home? Taking me home in the car? Panicked, I remembered Colin in his foster home. My heart pounded so hard I thought I would throw up, and delirious with panic, I turned heel and ran. Ran from Mrs. McCready, the drunk driver. Even as I ran, I remembered wondering if I would get in more trouble for running away from a grown-up. But Mrs. McCready was so pissed that I knew she would wrap us all around a tree and we'd end up in foster care and then it wouldn't matter if my mother was mad at me. So I took off with a slurring Mrs. McCready demanding for me to return, her voice echoing through the bog as I went all the way back to St. Mary's and then took the sidewalk to my house. By the time I got there, I was crying from a mixture of adrenaline and fear and a powerful stitch in my side. I'd made it in 28 minutes, an absolutely groundbreaking record. But no time to celebrate. I had to save Gabby from going to a foster home. Mom, Mom, I sobbed, running right into my mother's arms. Mrs. McCready, Mom, Mrs. McCready. Shh, shh, she consoled me, stroking my hair. Calm down now, calm down, what's all this? Mrs. McCready, I sobbed again. She's drunk and she caught up to us in the bog and I know we're not supposed to go, but she caught us and she took Gabby and she's going to drive her home, drunk. 
My mother managed to give me a stern look that adequately reflected her dismay that I had been through the bog, but held her tongue and went to the phone to dial who? The police? I waited with bated breath. Now, I don't think she's driven from Pete's to her house, love. It's only two minutes. She reassured me as she waited with the phone to her ear. Hello? Aha, the police. She had them. Gabby was going to be okay. Hi, Mary. I just wanted to make sure Abigail got home okay. Huh. Well, yes. No, no. Huh. All right. Let me ask her. She covered the phone and turned to me. Mrs. McCready said Gabby's not home yet. What? She called Mrs. McCready? Drunk Mrs. McCready? I stood there dumbfounded while my mother turned back to the phone. To this day, I don't know what all was said. I must have been truly unintelligible or maybe the idea of Mrs. McCready being drunk was so laughable that my mother immediately dismissed it. But whatever the case, a phone call confirmed that Mrs. Creedy was home, perfectly sober and smelling of vanilla extract, while Gabby was missing. What followed is jumbled in my memory. I remember the police came and asked me questions. And I remember feeling confused and changing my story a lot. I could have sworn that it was Mrs. McCready, but there was Mrs. McCready on my sofa stone-cold sober and weeping into my mother's shoulder while another police officer asked her for pictures of her daughter. In the end, all I could say was that we took the shortcut and only I had come out of the swamp. I was not helpful even though I wanted desperately to be, but I felt so scared and confused that in the end, they gave up asking questions entirely and went out the search. I overheard one officer say I was traumatized. That was what I heard for years to come. Traumatized. False memories and PTSD. The list of things I got diagnosed with following Gabby's disappearance could have filled a book. They did find Gabby, though, eventually. It was five days later, and there wasn't much left. They said that her body was a short distance away from the blue ribbon that had tread into the mud, and ultimately that's what led them to her. Her fingernails had been melted off, and her mother had to ID what was left of the body, leading to a breakdown. The McCready house went up for sale, and I didn't see Mrs. McCready ever again. Later, Mr. Tully, Jeff's dad, got accused of the murder. There was no evidence, so he was never actually charged, but he had been found in the swamp with the neighbor's daughter in his pants around his ankles and some kitty porn in his den, so they got him for that and sent him to jail for a long time. They fixed the hole in the fence, and there were no more disappearances. But whether it was because they fixed the hole or sent Mr. Tully to jail, I don't know. There's one more part to my story, though. One I never told the cops or even my therapist. This is the reason I don't think my memories are false and why I don't think I was traumatized. 
It happened the very next day at school, long before Jeff Tully's dad was arrested and long before Jeff Tully had any reason to try to clear up his name. I was sitting at my desk doodling when Jeff nudged me. Psst, he whispered, leaning towards me. Where's Gabby? I don't know, I muttered darkly. I felt upset and guilty. No one yet knew she was missing except for the teacher. Everyone thought she was sick. Psst, whispered Jeff again. What? Who was that old lady you guys were talking to yesterday in the bog? She wasn't a human being. I won't go near the cornfields again. I could hear the sound of moist soil being crushed beneath my wheels as I drove on. Water drops were sliding sideways on the windows. I couldn't see raindrops. I was within a damp cloud, and as I accelerated, the moisture clung to the windows and the hood. A huge and bright full moon was illuminating my path through the damp air. I was getting closer to settlements. Sporadic houses were beginning to appear in the vast fields and farmlands. The fields were mostly covered with tall corn stalks. I could only spot the houses through the roofs that I could barely see behind these tall stalks. Sometimes, dim lights from the early-to-rise farmers' houses caught my eye. Progress on this road through the silence of the night sent shivers down my spine. I felt like at any moment, something would appear in the back seat and take away the only safe place I had. My eyes constantly shifted to the rearview mirror. I was on high alert for any potential attack from the back seat. What a foolish thought. Little did I realize that by constantly checking the rearview mirror, I failed to notice the real danger ahead. It was late when I saw a long shadow in the middle of the road. I slammed on the brakes with all my might. Whatever it was, I didn't want to harm it intentionally. My car slid smoothly on the damp soil and tumbled to the side of the road. I found myself in the midst of the cornfield. My car had turned upside down, and the screeching noises from the engine filled the silent air. I didn't know what to do. I unbuckled my seatbelt and fell onto the car's roof. I carefully climbed out through the shattered glass. Miraculously, I hadn't sustained any injuries. I stood up with the support of the wet soil I had been crawling on. I was shaken, and I couldn't think straight. What had just happened? What was that shadow? Had my car really flipped? What should I do now? I was lucky to be unharmed. I knew that the only thing I could do was to seek help. I was trembling from shock. I took out my phone. Of course, there was no signal. I must be in some remote area where signals couldn't reach. I panicked and waved my phone around, trying to catch a signal, but there was none. I was alone in the middle of the night and couldn't do anything. My legs gave way and I fell to the ground. I put my head in my hands and tried to calm down. Suddenly, I remembered the roofs that I could barely see behind the stalks. 
I had seen some houses, and perhaps some of them were empty. But I had seen some lights in a few houses. How far had I drifted from them? And what direction could I take to reach those houses? Was the moon still in front of me during my journey? Those cursed tall corn stalks. I had no idea what was around me. I could hardly make out the full moon. Damn these tall corn stalks. I decided to take to the road. Yes, if I walked, I could cover the distance until I spotted a house. But there was no road. The dirt road had disappeared. It was as if tall corn stalks had suddenly sprung up everywhere and devoured everything. No, this couldn't be happening. Even the car's crash trail was pulling me into the corn stalks. Panicking, I ran back and forth through the corn stalks, searching for a path. They were everywhere. I couldn't see any clues. What was I going to do? I decided to walk with the full moon behind me. I wanted to get out of this desolate and terrifying night as soon as possible. I walked for about an hour, trying to shake off the shock. The cornfields seemed endless, but my patience had long run out. After walking a bit further, I came across a scarecrow tied to a thick post. It didn't look normal. This thing I saw had no limbs, its parts laid on the ground. The scarecrow was torn apart. Only its body and head remained, while small pieces had been ripped off and thrown to the ground. In the blowing wind, the remaining pieces of its body swayed, making my night even more terrifying and eerie. Were the things I'd experienced and seen real? My head was spinning. It wasn't just the few scraps of cloth swaying in the wind that sent shivers down my spine. The stories I had heard since childhood, the tales with the same protagonist, an abnormal creature with abnormally long arms and fingers, a gaunt, tall figure. Some even called them claws instead of fingers. The stories concocted by the local folks to scare children had now captured a 30-year-old man in the dark and desolate night, right after a gruesome accident. The scarecrow resembled her victims, unfortunate individuals with their limbs torn off, leaving only their bodies. After a brief return to the boogeyman tales of my childhood, it occurred to me that my current situation was equally unfortunate. I tried to collect my thoughts. I needed to keep going. I didn't want to stop until I found help. I resumed my journey again with the full moon to my back. The corn stalks had thickened and seemed to have grown taller. I was struggling to pass through them. Without the moon, I wouldn't have been able to take a single step in this cornfield by now. I walked and walked and walked. I walked until I came across another scarecrow. Its condition was the same. Its limbs had been torn apart, leaving only its body. Why? How? What was tormenting these scarecrows? Naughty children who disliked scarecrows? Or was it her? I had trouble remembering her name, but I think they called her Tall Jane. 
in the desolation of the night, in this terrifying landscape, especially after seeing these scarecrows. I didn't want to think about Jane. I tried to shake off my thoughts. It was as if the scarecrows were narrating stories to me again. All those childhood fears were slowly coming back. I felt like I was a child again, and the scarecrows were doing their job, scaring me. When I started walking again, the only thing on my mind was tall Jane. I walked until I found a small patch of open ground between the adjacent tall cornstalks. I stopped against the corn-walled space. In the middle of the small, empty plot stood a long pole that resembled the poles from which the scarecrows hung. I looked at it. On it, wrapped in fluttering fabrics, was another scarecrow, yet again. As I got closer, I saw the pieces on the ground. These weren't straw or dry branches. The moonlight was glimming off the pieces on the ground. They were wet, and they stank. The stench hit my nose when the wind carried the odors. Rotten corpses. All the foul smells. As I approached, the smells became repulsive. As I got closer to the pieces on the ground, the light reflecting from them turned even redder. When I reached the pole in the midst of the pieces on the ground, my heart felt like it was going to burst out of my chest. I could discern fingers among the pieces on the ground. I was breathless. Human fingers. They were just lying on the ground, decaying in the middle of a pool of gathered blood. I looked up. I stared at the top of the pole. I knew what I would see, but I was silently praying for it not to be what I thought. My body had suddenly grown even colder than that night. A body, and a head. Only these remained. They had been hung on the pole and left the rot. In an instant, the stories in my head had turned into real images. I was petrified. Sounds started coming from among the cornstalks. At first, I thought it was the wind, but when the rustling of the corn leaves ceased, someone began to laugh. The wind couldn't laugh. My reflexes had kicked in from fear. I ran faster than I had ever run in the exact opposite direction of where the sound was coming from. I wanted to scream out of fear, but I couldn't waste my breath. I also didn't think there was anyone around to help. I didn't know where I was headed, and the pain I felt as I bumped into the cornstalks didn't matter. I was running, but she was coming after me. I was sure of it. Only Jane, who left just the body behind. Tall Jane. No, it couldn't be. It must be a madman. A murderer who had grown up with the same stories. A psychopath. Now he was after me, and I had walked right into his arms. Was he performing a ritual, or waiting for me? I don't know. I needed the run, without stopping. When I reached another clearing, she stood in the center, looking at me. My breath was taken away, and my throat closed. 
a shadow much taller than an ordinary person standing behind the moonlight. She was looking at me. Her body was gaunt. Her arms and hands were abnormally long. They didn't even look like hands. They resembled sharp claws extending from the ends of its arms. Long, dirty hair covered her face. She had no clothing on. She was gaunt and terrifying. She was waiting for me. She was standing in front of her newly erected post, looking at me. Was this truly her? Jane? The stories had come to life, and all those I saw her tales and accounts were real. Jane was real, and the next victim was me. My eyes welled up with fear, and then they emptied suddenly. My lips and jaw were trembling. All the absurd tales I thought had been fabricated to scare children were now jumped at me with a single scream. I couldn't move. Even if I could, I couldn't escape. Jane was not a human being. She was a monstrosity. I felt the sharp claws piercing through my abdomen. I couldn't make a sound. She lifted me up. I saw her yellow eyes looking at me through the strands of hair. She carried me to the post like a scarecrow and threaded a large hook through the end. My body was rigid. Even the shock of the hook piercing my lungs didn't register as pain. None of my body parts, except for my eyes, were responsive. As the horror that had paralyzed my body subsided, I realized that my left leg was missing. Jane had torn apart, scattering it on the ground. It was now pulling a large piece from within her repulsive mouth, hidden amidst her hair. The pain had just reached my brain. It was overwhelming. I began to scream in pain and agony. What I had seen and felt was overwhelming. I needed to break free from this hook. I needed to escape, and I didn't care how. I could even run on my hands. I felt my head spinning and my vision darkening. I'd lost too much blood. I remember hearing a gunshot just before losing cautiousness. When I awoke, I found myself in a hospital room, having escaped that nightmare. Jane was gone. With my leg. <laughs>